Hello and welcome to New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Every program, we pick a new book that's especially interesting and chat with the author about the book. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Kambiz Ganabesiri, professor of religion at Reed College, about his new book, A History of Islam in America, From the New World to the New World Order. Despite the fact that many American Muslim families have lived in the United States for generations, they are often thought of as foreigners. I have on occasion seen people ask African-American Muslims, for example, when they converted to Islam or what drew them to the religion, or asking Muslims from Middle Eastern or Asian descent where they're from or when they came to America. It's surprising for some people to find out that these people are neither converts or immigrants. There are sometimes second, third, fourth generation Muslims living in America. I don't think people are trying to be malicious when they ask these types of questions but it does underscore some of the assumptions we have in popular discourse about American Muslims. That is to say, Muslims are new members of the United States, whether through immigration or conversion. Cambiz does an excellent job of showing that Muslims in America have a long history. He's able to accomplish this with great success because of both his strong training in Islamic studies, but also in American religious history. Because of this, he's able to transcend a flat, monolithic presentation of American Muslims that's often offered in the current politicized, discursive dichotomy between Islam and the West. A History of Islam in America is an essential read for anyone interested in Islam in America or American religious history. So let's hear what he had to say. Today we're here with Kambi's Kanabisiri. We're going to be talking about his new book, a History of Islam in America, From the New World to the New World Order, uh, which came out in 2010 with Cambridge University Press. Um, Kembis, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for joining us. My um, pleasure. Yeah, I was really happy to get the book and read it over. I think you're adding a lot to the conversation. Um, I wasn't expecting you to be as theoretically rich and methodologically thorough. Um, I was expecting some more portraits of uh, prominent Muslim Americans. So I think you're really um, changing the way you approach Islam in America, and I think it's uh, for the better, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Before we get into the book, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Sure. Um, I was uh, born in Tehran, Iran, and immigrated with my family to the United States during the Iran-Iraq War. Um, I went to Claremont McKenna College to do an undergraduate degree in uh, in uh, religious studies and then became really interested in religion as a way in which people think about their world and shape their world. And then went on to um, graduate school to work both on uh, American religious history and um, uh, early Islamic and modern Islamic intellectual and social history in the Middle East primarily. And how did I know you've been working on Islam in America for a while? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did you uh, get into this specific project? Um, there's a really interesting story behind that. Um, when I was uh, in college, I wrote my senior thesis on Muslims in Los Angeles, which later on I revised while I was in graduate school and published as a book called Competing Visions of Islam in the United States, a study of Los Angeles. Um, and at that time, there wasn't much done on Muslims in America, hence, you know, people like being able to, like me being able to publish their senior thesis as a book um, with an academic press. Uh, 
but I noticed that, that when I was working on, on um, Muslims in America, that everyone who was writing or thinking about Muslims in America uh, was not trained in American religious history. And uh, as a student of religion who was interested in Islam, I was very well aware that because Islam had generally been studied up until very recently in area studies departments, um, it wasn't really part of a larger conversation about religion more generally. We've had had theorists to work on Islam like Geertz and Wilford Canwell Smith um, being influential in the study of religion, but Islam as a religion hadn't really shaped all the uh, analytical categories that I studied as a student of religion. And I was concerned that if you have people writing on American Islam who haven't been trained in American religious history, um, that uh, history will repeat itself and that people would look at them. A larger context or the context in which they're living their lives, uh, but rather that they would, they would become uh, marginalized to larger discussions of American history and the history in which they're actually participating. And so when I was going to graduate school, I wanted to study Islam primarily. And like, um, you know, most people get my solid foundation in um in um, Islamic studies, but I also wanted to study American religious history with the idea of writing this book eventually. And um, uh, so I minored in American religious history uh, with uh, Professor Bill, Bill Hutchison in particular, uh, uh, who was a major influence in the way in which I um, came to think about Muslims in America more, more generally and um, think about religion and religious history um, more generally. Uh, and also worked with Roy Motehede and uh, William Graham, who were also very influential in the way in which I began to think about how we as scholars of religion could not just talk about uh, people through our own theoretical lenses, but also um, examine the ways in which they act on their worlds and they, they um, shape, shape their own worlds. Um, so after uh, graduating from... Uh, uh, graduate school um, at Har- from leaving Harvard, I was con- uh, I was it was right around nine eleven, and I was contacted uh, by Cambridge University Press to see if I would be interested in writing something on Islam in America, and I told them that essentially, uh, you know, not I haven't been working on this material for a while. Right now, I'm very busy working on early ninth uh, and tenth century Islamic intellectual history and conceptions of justice there. So. Um, you know, I haven't been doing this, and if I was going to do something, this is what I would do, that I would want to take on a historical approach. And um, the editor wrote back and said, wonderful, let's you know, send me a proposal and let's do this. And I ended up putting a proposal together. And interestingly, the, when the blind reviews came back, they all sort of insisted that Dr. Ghanabasiri knows about um, Muslims in, since the 1960s. He should be focusing on that and uh, why you know, not focusing so much on the long, this longer uh, history. Um, and after seeing those reviews, I thought the editor was not going to publish the book um, because they sort of, they insisted that I that the book be essentially about Muslims since the 1960s. Um, and I told the editor that that was in the book I was interested in writing. Um, and she ended up contacting me and saying, "No, you know, to just give me your justification for what it is you want to do, and we'll move forward with it." And um, that's how the book came about. And given the positive re- reception is received so far, I feel redeemed in many ways for ins- sticking to my guns and uh, you know, not having uh, only 20 pages be about the rest of the, uh, the history of Muslims in America and the rest about uh, Muslims in America since the 1960s. Yeah, I think you've, you've added a real lot. It's, a, it's very rich. Um, 
As far as uh, the way you kind of frame the book, there's a few kind of, uh, I guess, theoretical and methodological things I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, first, maybe you could kind of explain this term, American Islam. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, for some people, this is problematic. Um, I think in the book, you, you describe this very clearly. So if you could just explain uh, what, yeah. the use of American Islam. Yeah, it's um, it's problematic for um, several reasons. One is that it suggests that there are local Islams, and in Islamic studies, we've had this turn um, in the 70s, and uh, where a lot of anthropologists proposed that we can't really understand Islam as a as a, a, a global movement, given the enormous diversity that exists among Muslims, and we ought to think about Muslims in terms of. Uh, m- in in, term, in, a, in terms of plurals, um, so Islams rather than uh, Islam, and for many the term, the phrase American Islam suggests this that um, we ought to think about Islam in in regional terms, and of course that becomes problematic because Muslims themselves don't understand their practices, even though they're local practices or um, their universal ideas being put into practice or uh, in in regional contexts, they don't understand their religion in that way. They understand it as a universal uh, uh, religion. So some are, have problems with the phrase for that reason. Others, it also for some suggests this sort of triumphalism of um, American triumphalism that we're uh, we're um, familiar with. Uh, and I don't use it in the, in in that sense at all. Um, and I don't think of it in that sense at all. And I try in the book to say. That what we are witnessing is, and uh, what I call American Islam, is a particular type of establishment, institution building, and community building that has a long has had a long history in the United States, and that um, that, and I try to in the book um, trace this history, this con- the continuity that exists in community and institution building in the United States among Muslims, um, uh, that gives. Uh, the Islamists practiced in, in the United States uh, uh, particular contours, and I tried to trace those contours in, in the book. And I think it's fair to call those particular contours that America that Islam has had historically in America uh, and American Islam, and not in the sense to say that American Islam is somehow different from Egyptian Islam or. Uh, in, in terms of in theological terms, or that it's a, to belittle it in a sense to say that you know oh this is what they do in America this is Americanized Islam as opposed to like the true Islam of a heartland or anything of that sort, um, which I don't think are uh, assertions that could be theoretically um, justified, but rather as a way to say that there has been a historical continuity among the way in which uh, in the way in which Muslims have practiced their religion in the United States and that could be identified and seen as American Islam um, I'm wondering if you could discuss also um, the problems with the framing in American Islam and the current politicized dichotomy between Islam and the West um, you, you discuss a little bit about some of the previous scholarship on this and I'm wondering how your book challenges this model. Thank you for bringing that up. That was actually one of the other main reasons why I ended up uh, writing this book, because um, a lot of the discussion, a lot of the work that had been done by people who were not specialists in American religious history he, um, and or, uh, 
on Muslims in America had been done by sociologists and anthropologists who were mainly concerned about issues of uh, assimilation, sort of assuming this dichotomy between Islam and the and the West, and then asking, well, how are Muslims getting along in the United States? How are they faring in the United States? You know, what happens when Muslims want to cover their hair, or what happens? Not to be too facetious, but you know, when they go to the bathroom and there's no water for them to clean themselves, or as Islamic law ritual uh, purity laws require, and so on. And there was such a hung up on um, on questions of assimilation, which I think to some degree is fair enough because that's a that's a concern that people generally have. That what we were missing was the fact that the history of Islam in America, the history of Muslims in America, by the virtue of the fact that people were Muslims and living in the West challenges this binary between Islam and the West. And that has come to shape the way in which people think about Islam generally since the 19th century, at least. Um, and it challenges the dichotomy between Islam and modernity um, that, we, that we see uh, in scholarship throughout the 19th and 20th century. And it forces us to rethink, actually, the relationship between Islam and modernity. Um, and I saw in many ways a missed opportunity that if we rather than looking at the experiences of Muslims, which they went about interpreting their religion in an American context, in a quote-unquote Western um, context, uh, rather than challenging our existing uh, uh, frameworks for thinking about Islam and modernity, uh, we're reinforcing them by asking questions about how Muslims are faring when in actuality. Muslims have fared very well and have been here for a very long time and haven't had the issues that many scholars have thought that they would be concerned with or that would be problematic for them when they're asking questions about how Muslims uh, are assimilating. And my hope really was that the book would um, set up a framework uh, where we could do a lot more scholarship and rethink the larger uh, narratives of um, the relationship between Islam and modernity. Um, another one of the approaches you take in the book, uh, as opposed to s- s- a lot of scholarship which focus on biographies of, of individual Muslims, especially in the earlier period, you focus on uh, communal relations or what you call in- encounters and exchanges and then uh, the role of institutions. Um, why, do you, why do you think these are important and uh, effective in showing kind of a more dynamic history of Islam in America? Um, the first is the... The, a lot of the work that has been done on the history of Muslims in America is focused on uh, African Muslims who were enslaved in um, what eventually became the United States. And, um, you know, this, these, some of these works were published uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, but they didn't really have much of an impact on the way in which people um, thought about uh, Slavery, the way in which they thought about the relationships, uh, um, Muslims' relationship to the United States, even in that in that period, um, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the focus on these were on individual Muslims, because that's all that's all the evidence that we have. We had individual Muslims in this in the antebellum and colonial period who stood out by um, virtue of the fact that um, white Christians took interest in them by virtue of the fact that they were literate. Um, and their stories then became these sort of quaint stories that we could we could look at, sort of local histories of some sort that we could look at, even though their lives actually were representative of this larger exchange between um, and encounters between West Africa, Western Europe, uh, Western European empires, particularly um, the French, the British, then the Spanish, 
and the Americas, and their lives were actually tracing their lives was um, uh, personified these these relationships. But that was all lost in the way in which most of the scholars focused on these individuals as sort of quaint Muslims, like you know Grant, for example, wrote this book called The Fortunate Slave, uh, where it became. Uh, uh, sort of a quaint story about one ind- individual, even though that individual's life personified all sorts of um, interesting um, transatlantic uh, relations. And for me as a student of religion, um, I think religion is always defined in, in relationship uh, to one another. You know, it's not until there's, you, know, you can't have Islam without Christianity. You, you can't have religions in the plural um, you can't have religion in the same religions in the in the plural that they're always in relationship to one another, and that the process of distinguishing uh, one group, one religious group from another, always re- requires some form of recognition, some form of recognition of religion from which religions in the plurals is derived. Um, so I thought. What I was really interested in wasn't so much um, what these individuals had done, whether it be during times of slavery or whether it be in the early 20th century, um, but rather how their lives personified these relations that sort of grand narratives of modernity and the grand narratives of American history have overlooked. Uh, While in actuality, it was really these relations that shaped American history and, and came to shape the way in uh, in which Americans came to understand themselves and and distinguish themselves from um, the quote unquote uh, old world. Um, so, because of my interest as a student of religion and the relationality of, of religion, this is one of those things that I think the history of Islam in America contributes to larger theoretical discussions of of modernity and religion in particular, um, that religions are always in relationship and being defined in relation to uh, to one another. Um, I was much more interested in how it was that, um, even if I looked at vignettes or individuals, how it is that they uh, represented a larger relational uh, history uh, than simply quaint stories about particular individuals or uh, particular e- events in time. And, um, you know, in some ways, I wasn't sure exactly what I find when I go through um, my sources with this eye, um, but I was shocked to find this very interesting um, transnational uh, story of Islam. Um, and America um, that most people don't know about. Um, in the first two chapters, you focus on this early period, and uh, kind of two of these things you talk about for early in enslaved African Muslims is uh, de-Negrification and de-Islamization. Could you mm-hmm. discuss these two terms and how they relate? Uh, yeah. Um, this was... This was um, one of these two terms that I was introducing in the text that I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and worrying about their, their uh, introduction. Um, and by denegrification, um, what I uh, was trying to capture was this notion that uh, certain blacks because or Africans because they were found to be Muslims came to be distinguished from um, other Africans because um, and the the way in which they were portrayed by the white Americans who had who had encounters with them or wrote about them or and tried to preserve the aspects of um, the history um, they 
were distinguished from the stereotypical characteristics that are often given to um, Africans, such as, you know, uh, know, a particular type of curly hair and, uh, uh, you know, Certain facial features and um, and these Africans, even though they were, they shared all of those uh, characteristics with other Africans, by virtue of the fact that they were um, identified as Muslims, had to be seen as somehow different from uh, the uh, the rest of Africans to justify them. And this sort of what I tried to um, uh, identify as a as a liminal space through which then the relationship between white white Americans and black Africans could be renegotiated and redefined. And in particular, it was defined historically um, by seeing these Africans as sort of uh, semi-civilized people because because they knew how to uh, read and write, uh, because they were seen as being part of a larger Islamic, uh, Islamic civilization. They were seen as individuals who could who stood between the uncivilized African and the civilized Christian, American Christian, and then they could act as bridges of sorts and occupy this liminal space between these uh, uh, these two groups in order to um, redefine America's relationship to Africa and and, and eventually uh, with slavery. And similarly with um, uh, while Islam was used as a way of denegrifying to disassociate black uh, in- slaves from uh, negative characters- characteristics that were stereotypically associated with Africans, um, there was also a process by which acceptance of these groups meant that they had to then also disassociate themselves from, uh, be disassociated from Islam. And this was often done by saying that these individuals had converted, even though people very well knew that they, were, they hadn't converted or um, – and, and uh, especially, for example, uh, one particular character, Abdurrahman, uh, when people were trying to uh, get support for his repatriation to Africa, uh, they presented them as a convert to Christianity. And when some Southerners were concerned about the fact that he was being used as a way of um, bemoaning slavery and uh, for anti-slavery propaganda, they began to dis- describe him as uh, as a um, bloodthirsty um, Muslim, um, so that these these characterizations of individuals as either Islamic or uh, or um, black or their disassociation from certain characteristics stereotypes that are associated with blacks and and uh, Muslims a way of defining these individuals in in a in a liminal context so that they could serve as intermediaries, um, and I don't. Uh, I don't think I pushed the envelope here as far as it could go because this, I think, raises all sorts of interesting um, questions about race in America more generally because we continue to see this process in the early 20th century when uh, certain black Americans themselves in the more science temple and in the nation of Islam use Islam in similar ways to distinguish themselves from blacks and in particular to distinguish themselves as, a, as constituting a by, – by saying that they constitute a new nation, national identity. Uh, one that's Islamic, one that's not, uh, you know, not associated with the uh, stigmatized stereotypes of the quote-unquote ne- uh, Negro. Um, and I hope other scholars in the future will pick these strands up and, and follow them and trace them through. Yeah, I think they're, they're good kind of uh, framing terms um, to approach these. Um, also during this early period, you talk about the 
diversity of practices and how that uh, affects the limits of the community, I guess. Could you discuss that a little bit? Yeah. Um, one of the one of the other um, sort of features of the scholarship on Muslims in colonial and antebellum America has been that Muslims have been seen as sort of survivals, uh, African survivals in, the, uh, in, in America. So that by that, I mean that um, they have been seen as uh, African elements that could survive in the United States, the aspects of African culture that survive in the United States and affect Af- come to affect a particular type of African-American culture. Alternatively, they've been seen as um, uh, the practice of Islam in the United States was seen as a form of resistance against white supremacy and, and uh, slavery. And this assumed generally that communal boundaries that Muslims tried to create through their practices uh, were exclusivist communal boundaries so that they maintained a distinct Islamic identity in, the, in this American context as a form of resistance and opposition to slavery and white supremacy. If you actually look at the practices much more closely, you find that being in an American context and they're actually being used as ways of redefining the practice continues to define communal boundaries but redefines them in American context in a way that includes both non-Muslim Africans and non-Muslim African Americans and in some cases uh, in some cases whites the practice of Islam was used as a way of um, being able to define new communal boundaries. And this was particularly, um, I think, easier for Muslims because already Islam gives Muslims an interpretation of other religions. As, you know, so Jews and Christians become people of the book, and they're not, uh, uh, and that already provides a way by which Muslims could enter into some sort of communion uh, uh, with them. One of the examples um, I give is this um, wonderful character, Omar ibn Said, who um, talks about reading the Bible and the Quran at the same time, and in talks about his own understandings God in a way that interspersed both the the New Testament and the Quran together and goes back and forth between them to sort of identify new religious his to identify his religious identity in a way that both recognizes him as distinctly Islamic and recognizes him as being in communion with his with his master the Owens the own family which he seemed to like because of how well they treated him similarly find practices that were done with with um, distribution of uh, rice case at, rice cakes as form of sadaqa or, or uh, alms of sorts, sacrificial alms of sorts, um, where Muslims were doing this to to commemorate uh, Islamic practices while entering into by by, by um, uh, sharing these rice cakes with non-Muslims. They were entering into a new communal relationship with their own. Uh, in, you know, with their uh, com- uh, companions who happen to be not um, black slaves, African and African American. Um, so that there seems to be a lot more going on in the way in which Islam was practiced than simply exercising a form of resistance. This doesn't mean that people weren't by practicing Islam also challenging um, social hierarchies and and uh, uh, racism, but it seems that there, there was also more going on, and I think that's important because then we could we could see that um, black Muslims were participating in the creation of an African American culture and an African American religion in ways that hasn't been recognized. Um, I think at least in the nineteenth century, they weren't always seen seeing themselves as being um, distinct from other uh, slaves or. Uh, whites. 
you, you then move in the book to uh, the post-Civil War era and um, the way in which you frame this, and, and you do this really well in every chapter, you really give a, a good contextualization of uh, what's going on in Amer- American religion. Mm-hmm. And um, for this chapter, you, you focus on uh, race, religion, and progress. Could you discuss how that relates to the American identity of the time? Yeah, uh, um, one of the this story has been told in in many ways, and I think the, I use the World Parliament of Religions and um, and 1893 as a way of exemplifying this. Um, that um, and I talk about this as a conflation that occurs to define an American national identity, where the sort of Anglo-Saxon race and Protestant religion and progress are all conflated to, with one another to define a national identity that that unites uh, uh, Americans and celebrates American establish, uh, American values and the uh, establishment of American industry. Uh, the word conflate is not exactly historically accurate because they themselves didn't see race and religion and progress as being separate categories that could be conflated together. And so they saw them as being all intermingled, inter, uh, but we could look at them as different separate categories that they can uh, conflate it to sort of justify a Anglo-Saxon super, uh, supremacy and to define um, at a time in which America was becoming increasingly diverse, not only because of the uh, uh, emancipation of slaves, but also because of increased immigration from Southern Europe and increased immigration of Catholics and Jews into the United States, uh, the annexation of territories in which uh, both French Catholic, Catholic and Spanish Catholics uh, lived in the United States. Uh, so these um, uh, Latin American communities, all it was raising all sorts of questions about the nature of uh, America's national identity. And the argument that seems to have won out in the late 19th century in the post-Civil War was this one that saw America as essentially an Anglo-Saxon nation um, that was able to attain the progress and the scientific and industrial advancements that it had attained um, because of its values which were identified with uh, with uh, Protestantism, and this comes for a very long time uh, to shape America's national uh, national identity, and it becomes extremely influential also for um, uh, for American Muslims, um, for, uh, particularly blacks, uh, who come to use. Islam in a similar way to uh, to read themselves into American modernity in a way that so that the uh, the black race and Islam and progress go hand in hand in a way to find a national a black national identity that I think we find blatantly and clearly in um, the Moorish Science Temple and and the Nation of Islam. You also use. Um I, I think even though these figures are rather different, use uh, Alexander Russell Webb and mm-hmm. Khan to kind of exemplify the the role of certain types of people during the, the late 19th century. Could you discuss these two figures? Yeah, and for them, we could see, uh, uh, for particularly, um, we could see how influential this was in the way in which people thought about um, uh, uh, religion more more generally. Um Ahmed Alexander Webb was a diplomat who converted to Islam in 1892 um, and was sort of recruited by um, these Indian businessmen to propagate Islam in the, in the United States. Um, 
and he belonged uh, belonged to the theosophical uh, societies and was primarily interested in uh, in theosophy and as a result of reading certain sufi texts come to comes to be uh, uh, interested in Islam and commercial Islam, even though most theosophists saw that, that Islam is too particularly monotheistic and doctrinaire uh, uh, for, uh, for it to be taken seriously and interpreted in a, in a, uh, according to uh, theosophical, uh, uh, theosophical thought. Um, and what's interesting about Webb is that Webb thinks that he's able, because uh, what he's able to identify in Islam is so, is so uh, nicely correlates with what he saw as sort of American values of open-mindedness liber- and, and uh, liberality. He thought that he would be successful in propagating Islam uh, in America. And then uh, what he actually finds out is that um, most Americans didn't, cons- didn't think that that was possible at all and, and sort of on talked about him in using ways. Um, and I thought it was an interesting figure uh, who also comes into the United States in the, uh, in the early 20th century um, and finds that uh, there's a, this interest in non-traditionally uh, 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 traditional Christian uh, religion, what he identifies as a form of a spiritual, more universal spirituality of sorts that at that time was, because of the influence of the theosophists in large part, um, was being associated with Hinduism and, and Buddhism. And as a Hindu, uh, he goes and um, talks in uh, some of the temples that were associated with Vivekanandi. Uh, and, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, finds that although uh, people are interested in his message of Sufism. They're not particularly interested. Uh, they, they're wary of uh, the association of Sufism um, with Islam and comes to completely disassociate himself uh, from uh, uh, Islam to identify himself as a as a Sufi master and disassociate Sufism as a form of universal teaching that just accidentally happens to be associated uh, with Islam in order to um, be able to propagate his message in the in the United States and he encounters another aspect of this sort of conflation of race religion and 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 progress because of his darker darker skin um, he, he was uh, and and because he was from India he was detained for example. Um, uh, upon one of his return trips uh, from Europe to the United States um, and had to be um, uh, uh, taken from the immigration, taken from custody by, uh, from immigration uh, officials uh, by one of his uh, followers and specifically talks about the, uh, the problem of race in America that he saw as uh, betraying other American ideals of um, equality and, and uh, progress. And both of them, so you know, instantiate this, um, or I talk about them in book, instantiating um, the effects of this, the, the, both the enormous popularity and the effects of this conflation of race, religion, and uh, progress in the United States. In the next chapter, you, you talk about the early 20th century, mm-hmm. and you talk about the relationship between uh, race, ethnicity, religion, and citizenship. Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk about kind of some of what's going on in the early 20th century and how these relate to each other? Yeah. In the early 20th century, we, we get the immigrants coming uh, from 
Anatolia, Eastern Europe, and South Asia today, United States, in relatively um, uh, significant numbers. And um, one of the first people who tried to actually figure out how, what percentage of how many of these immigrants were Muslims. Generally, Muslims were minority of the, uh, minority of the small part of the larger immigrant populations that came from these regions. And I think there were about 60, from what I was what I have been able estimated about 60,000 of these immigrants from these regions um, up until World War One were probably Muslim. Um, <clears throat> and as they, so, uh, the, again, um, the United States began, uh, has to um, figure out, well, put that differently, these new immigrants have to figure out how their own stories fit into the larger history of um, uh, Islam. Uh, larger history of America. And here, ethnicity comes to play a much more prominent role in people's lives than and religion does, in part because I think that the, the Islam could not have been seen as being part of a larger American narrative um, at this time. Um, so a lot of the Muslims who came either dissimilated, they didn't, they didn't talk about themselves as Muslims, they changed their names, they didn't say that they were Muslims, um, so that because they were afraid that if they do, they wouldn't be allowed entry into the United States. And some were actually denied entry into the United States because uh, of a law that indicated that, and that said that anyone who believes in the practice of polygamy or the validity of the practice of polygamy um, should be barred from entry into the uh, into the United States, um, and some some Muslims were identified. Um, some people were identified as Muslims uh, were denied entry into the in United States. Um, and at this time, also, uh, with as America was trying to figure out um, its own national identity, and vis-a-vis uh, its own uh, citizenship laws. Uh, there are laws passed that denied citizenship to people who are neither black or white, uh, which raised a particularly interesting question for many of you. know, are, are Arabs, for example, white, or are they uh, black, or are uh, South Asians, because they're Caucasian, or they, should they be considered white, or should they be considered black? And um, the reason for this was that the, uh, the citizenship laws first uh, gave citizenship to in 1792, people um, who were white. And then after the emancipation, that law was changed to include uh, uh, blacks into, uh, in, uh, include blacks as citizens of the United States also, which then meant that anyone who was considered to be part of the quote-unquote Mongolian races or, uh, would not be eligible for, uh, uh, for citizenship. And this mobilized a lot of... Um, immigrant Muslims to begin to think again of themselves in more ethnic terms rather than um, in religious terms. And so a lot of Arab Muslims came to associate with other Arab communities much more than they did with Muslim communities. I think they ordered themselves communally and institutionally around an Arab national uh, Arab ethnic identity rather than an Arab Muslim identity or a Muslim identity, similarly with South Asians and so on. And um, and I trace in the book this sort of uh, uh, ways in which um, they try to interpret their own ethnic identities uh, to say that they're white, so that they could be included in the, in, as citizens in the in the United States. And for the most part, um, Arabs were successful in doing this, uh, arguing that they were they should be considered white in part because. Um, 
you know, they came from the Holy Land where Jesus himself was and would the United States deny citizenship to Jesus. Um, and South Asians, because of their skin color, um, even though there were all sorts of um, more scientific arguments or uh, you know, so-called scientific arguments were made about South Asians being Caucasians, um, because of their skin color, they were denied citizenship up until the liberalization of the citizenship laws, immigration laws in the 1950s and 60s. You then move to uh, institution, uh, institutions and organizations and how these play a role in what you call rooting Islam in America. Um, can you talk about some of these, either these groups or these institutions? Yeah. Um, one, of, I, one of the... Uh, things that was particularly interesting is already we see the, um, in, in the attempts that Muslims made, um, and a lot of immigrants from South Asia and um, the Middle East made to identify themselves as, uh, to be able to identify themselves as white to claim citizenship in the United States, and um, was this attempt um, to um, claim their own experiences, claim America f- for themselves. And we see this sort of go on hyperdrive in the post-World War II uh, uh, period. Um, and in between in this post-World War II period and the earlier period when people were ta- arguing for citizenship rights, we find this um, you know, several decades of Amer- Americans um, turning away from um, uh, uh, you know, turning away from just simply seeing themselves as sojourners in the United States to begin to root themselves in the uh, in America and begin to establish uh, mosques and uh, f- uh, funerary associations. And I argue that in particular, this was done uh, when their earlier immigrants died, and they wanted to their uh, and some of them died without families, and um, they, their families or their friends wanted them to be able to. Uh, receive a Islamic burial, which led to the formation of funerary associations, which later then led to the formation of um, of mosques and the sort of recognition that um, there was a need to begin to build Islamic institutions in the United States, given that there were now a sizable um, Muslim communities in this interwar per- uh, period in the uh, United States. Associations were mainly the funerary associations that were uh, that um, were often associated with particular ethnic communities. That's not so much true in a place like Detroit, uh, where um, Turks, Kurds, and Arabs uh, interacted with one another as Muslims in the funerary association, the Muslim funerary associations. Um, uh, but in the West Coast, for example, they're mainly South Asian. Um, so these institutions that they began building to begin to root Islam in America were funerary associations and and mosques. And at the same time, uh, we have the more science temple in the Nation of Islam that I had mentioned before, um, beginning to develop and institutionalize an understanding of a black national identity to which Islam was, uh, that was, Islam was an inherent part of. Um, and Islam was claimed as a way. Islam was claimed as a way by which um, blacks could define a separate identity from the stigmatized uh, 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 black identity of the time um, to read African Americans into the narrative of American modernity and, and uh, American progress. And this was mainly done by. Uh, uh, African-American migrants from the South 
um, to to the north, who arrives in the north expecting uh, that they will find an at- in context and atmosphere in which racism would not be as, as prevalent, but they found out otherwise and found that they need to develop ways by which they could think of them and uh, begin to help themselves. And helping oneself was an important, very important aspect of uh, both the ideology of the Nation of Islam and uh, the more science temple. Um. In the next chapter, you, you move to the 60s to the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's kind of a watershed moment in 1965, the Immigration and Nationality Act. Um, could you tell us what a post-1965 looks like for the diversity of Muslim community? Um, yeah. In the, uh, after the liberalization of the Immigration Act, uh, of immigration laws with the Immigration Act of 1965, um, the purpose behind this was that uh, there were, let me back up a little bit, there were quotas before that restricted immigration uh, from Asia and Africa to the United States, essentially any, any and Southern Europe into the United States. Um, the liberalization of these laws uh, got rid of these quotas, these racist quotas, and the expectation was that after World War II, Southern Europeans would want to join their families in the United, in the United States, and most Southern Europeans, though, stayed put. Um, and the people who actually ended up coming to the United States were mainly from Asia and Africa. And this completely diversified the the um, Muslim community He's, and also increased the number of um, Muslim communities in the United States by um, tenfold. So um, 1960s and 70s, we have about a million uh, people from Muslim majority countries coming to the United States. And in this case, now there were Muslims were the majority among these, um, these immigrants. Um, so in, beginning with the 1960s, we find that America becomes a, slowly a microcosm of the global Muslim, <laughs> the global Muslim community. That every uh, Muslims from every part of the world come to be represented um, in the United States, and uh, for the future Muslims within the 1980s and 1990s, and Muslim uh, Muslim leaders who are forming national Muslim associations. Um, they had to figure out a way of being able to make sense of this diversity, to be able to articulate a new understanding of um, uh, of uh, Islam that uh, that allowed um, that made sense of this diversity of Muslims and and articulated an uh, identity that uh, went beyond uh, traditional identities that may be associated like South Asia or Lebanon or uh, or other parts of the um, uh, Muslim world. And um, the other aspect of the way in which the immigration laws in 1965 diversified the American Muslim community was immediately after the World War II period, um, Muslims began to build national institutions for the first time. So the institutions that were built in the interwar period were many local institutions. There were mosques and funerary associations that served the local community. Um, there was very little activity among uh, – there there's a wonderfully interesting figure named Sati Majid uh, who um, – who was interested in national community building among Muslims in, in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two? Uh, but other than him, there se- doesn't seem to have been much uh, activity in terms of national activity among uh, Muslims. But after World War Two, uh, American Muslims began to, uh, you know, they had gone just like. 
um, Chinese Americans and black Americans who had gone abroad and fought for freedom abroad. When they came home, they weren't going to accept secondary citizenship status back uh, 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 in the United States. Um, so they began to organize themselves in ways to be able to claim their American identity and their their uh, uh, their uh, rights in America uh, as citizens. Um, so they be, there's a movement that um, to build. Uh, to bring local communities under a federation of sorts. And this movement con- comes and gets the name Federation of Islamic Associations of the United- in the United States and Canada. Um, and it was mainly led and founded by uh, veterans of World War II, Arab-American veterans of, of World War II. And these uh, 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 activists, Muslim activists, were... Um, very much concerned with the practice of Islam as um, it had developed in the United States up until this time. After 1965, we get a new uh, community, actually beginning with the, the late 1950s when students are, began to come, Muslim students also began to come to the United States in large numbers. But definitely after 1965, we get a new group of Muslims coming to the United States, a group that had been very much politicized by anti-colonial movements in their own homelands. Um, who came already very politicized to the United uh, to the United States with the idea of um, uh, establishing a pure Islam, a form of Islam that's embedded in the in, that's solely embedded in the Quran and the and the Hadith, is what I call it, uh, sort of a puritanical uh, Islam, and organizing themselves around these notions of of uh, Islam uh, and strewing. Um, ethnic identity and national identities all as being unimportant before this singular uh, Muslim identity that was founded, that should be founded on the uh, Quran and the Hadith. And these groups uh, began to change the character of national organizations in the United States um, slowly uh, through the formation of the Muslim Student Association, from which uh, several other national Muslim organizations break away, the Islamic Circle of North America that breaks away in the 1970s, and the Islamic Society of North America, which was founded in the early 1980s and is actually uh, a part of the Muslim Student Association that um, that um, takes on a new form. But even the Muslim Society of America uh, the, and the Muslim American Society, I'm sorry, MASS, um, that gets formed in the 1990s, had its roots all in the, in the, uh, in the MSA. So uh, we find both greater... Uh, diversity in terms of race and ethnicity in the United States after 1965, and great diversification of uh, of sort of beliefs about Islam, and particularly the introduction of these um, sort of uh, puritanical understandings uh, of Islam that then come to dominate a lot of the national organizations. Uh, now, one of the things that's interesting often when talk about um, this issue with, in, with American Muslims, and they often want to say that, well, you know, isn't it, didn't Islam really come to America in the post, after 1965, when these groups came before that, you know, what they did was this quaint thing that we talked about before, it was an Americanized uh, uh, Islam, that wasn't really important. Um, of course, they're, you know, they're expressing their own sort of normative understandings uh, uh, of Islam, to which I don't want to really um, speak, uh, but What's interesting is that when the Muslim Student Association um, gets it's founded, it models itself in 
very much like the Federation of Islamic Associations in which it had been involved before. Um, members, people who founded the Muslim Student Association or, or the MSA were involved in the Federation of Islamic Association before uh, the founding of the MSA. Um, and, you know, rather than uh, uh, founding a very sort of centralized organization like the FIA, they fi- found the Federation of sorts. Um, they give a lot of local autonomy to local branches. They see themselves as sort of facilitators rather than people who could dictate what it is that the rest of Muslims ought to do. So even though they themselves, um, the original founders, often had these sort of much more puritanical visions of Islam, the practices that uh, of individual branches of MSA were wide and varied and reflected uh, local, uh, uh, you know, the the local commun- Muslim communities and their needs and their understandings uh, of Islam. Um, so whatever one may think of the degree to which you know, one point normative, we could normatively say Islam came to the United States organizationally, institutionally, in terms of community building, we see this continuity from the, ways in, the way in which American Muslims began to uh, think about how to institutionalize and root Islam in America into a war period all the way uh, to the formation of the MSA and the Islamic Society of North America. Now, there's really a lot in the book that we're that we're skipping, and so I apologize for the time. But before I let you go, I really want to ask you about um, what's your vision of the, the the post 9-11 American national identity and where Muslims fit into that? Um, I'm really, really glad you asked me about that. The, um, the <laughs> interesting about the place of Muslims in this sort of new world order uh, uh, that, uh, that we're in now after the uh, end of the Cold War. Um, it, uh, it's complicated, and I'm not sure uh, where it's going to go uh, exactly, because um, while America has assimilated and dealt with a lot of immigrants from a lot of different countries with varying types of varying religions, um, this is the first time which America has had to figure out not only its national identity, but its role in the world is in uh, as a sole superpower in the world in relationship with these communities uh, within its own border um, so that America is trying to figure out not only its national identity but its role in the in the world as a whole as a sole superpower when it has in the uh, uh, is in direct conflict with Muslims immediately after um, the end of the Cold War Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait and uh, and this was in the good first Gulf War of 1990-91, where America's first action as a sole superpower brought it into conflict with um, a Muslim-majority uh, country. Then in 1993, um, we had the World Trade Center bombings uh, in New York City, which um, – Raised also some questions about what role Muslims could play in America's national, uh, in American multicultural, uh, uh, in, a, in a multicultural America. Where would Muslims fit? Can be they can they be trusted? Given that those that attack was undertaken by Muslims who had lived in the United, you know, by Muslims who had lived in the United States. Um, so we're in a very uh, difficult and complica- complex time, and it's perilous for. Uh, for a historian to say you know, what I see as happening in the future, uh, you know, to predict what, what would happen in the in the future. But what's clear is that um, America's national identity since the early 1990s is being defined in relationship um, to Muslims um, very clearly in 
well, in the past, maybe individual Muslims' lives or particular institutions may have instantiated the way in which American national identity was divine, de- defined more broadly. Now America's national identity is, ha- is being defined in relationship to Muslims, um, which has led us to this sort of very unusual place where um, whatever Muslims wear, how they look, what they say, all becomes a matter of not just you know religion or personal choice, but a matter of national security, a matter of loyalty, a matter of citizen uh, uh, citizenship, um, and we, f- we find that today in, uh, in this post nine eleven uh, very very prominently among Muslims in America that they see themselves as ambassadors. Every person. Um, uh, Muslim comes to see themselves as representing a, a larger group, even though that you know, that may not should, shouldn't be really the case. Um, so I'm not I'm not um, sure if I have a specific vision for where things are going to go, but I'm hopeful, particularly um, because of what we saw when this whole controversy around the mosque in Lower Manhattan um, came up, where we found American Muslims in their own voices on the national stage uh, talking about what it meant to them to be American, defending freedom of religion, defending uh, the the First Amendment um, for the rest of Americans. Um, And that that for me suggests that the, you know I think maybe ten years from now when we look back to um, that controversy that might be what stands out the most uh, for us so that gives me some reason um, uh, to be hopeful um, also just briefly, what do you think needs to be done uh, for us to better understand the history of Muslims in America? what kind of approaches maybe what topics do you think are going to be important? Um, I think one thing that needs to definitely be done is sort of preservation of Muslims' history. So archiving, I think, is important. Uh, there are a lot of uh, families that have been in the United States, Muslim families that have been influential, and in the United States are families of people who founded mosques and have been activists in the United States um, who have stuff sitting in their attics and important things <laughs> that should be archived and maintained. I think so that that just in a very logistical, practical way, it's really important, and I hope people would undertake it. Some um, places have already begun to do this. University of Michigan has begun to do this. Purdue University, Edward Curtis at Purdue had been trying to do this for a while, and I hope others uh, uh, do this, um, making this stuff available, making it so that people themselves, Americans themselves, could go back to these sources and and see them um, and understand and and read them and interpret them for themselves. Um, and contextualism in the larger history of, uh, of religion in America. Um, but I think maybe where the future and where things I would like, I hope goes, and where I think the uh, the you know where we sit from with the immediate future, the near future of the study of Islam in America stands is in the the way in which it highlights the relationality of histories, uh, both between the Muslim majority uh, world and um, Europe and America, um, and between um, uh, religions, um, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, and so on. And I think um, methodologically, we could look to the history of Islam in America and Muslims in America um, to develop ways, methods by which we could understand relations, uh, relational histories better, um, where we could tell um, uh, transnational stories um, better and understand the way in which um, 
and transnational ties have been influential in shaping how it is that America, American history has evolved and how American national identity has, has developed. Um, people have begun to do this already in uh, the study of the East Asians in the uh, in in the United States, a study of Buddhists, for example, um, Buddha, American um, Buddhists, people have begun to do this. And I think um, that's um, that's where a lot more work needs to be done and where there's a lot more um, for thought. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, before you go, though, could you tell us about what you're working on now? Um, I have several projects on my uh, plate. One of the ones that's... Um, uh, particularly relevant to this book was that I was surprised to find out that um, the first book-length study of Muslims in America that was written was published in 1960 out of Egypt and in Arabic. Um, and I didn't expect this at all when I was doing the research for this book. Um, and what I found there was that in the 1960s, uh, as the sort of these transnational Muslim organizations were being developed, um, and um, such as the uh, OIC uh, and the Muslim World League, um, they were very much interested in Muslim minority communities um, as modernist Muslim ideal ideas could not take root in Muslim majority nation states. They're very much looking to these Muslim minority communities as representative of the uh, the hope for the future of Islam. And they saw these communities as being able to um, to represent this sort of puritanical Islam that we were talking about because they would be able to do, Muslim minority communities would be able to divorce Islam from culture and be able to practice a sort of a pure, uh, pure Islam. And I've been really I'm interested in um, pursuing this line further to see what it is that organizations like, and we all know that Muslim World League and OIC you know, funded various organizations in the, in the United States, but um, we don't know much about the ideology that went behind that. You know, there's a, always people talk about this sort of like a Saudi influence, but there seems to have been much more going on that there was a, a way of thinking about um, religion more generally, religious pros and more generally that was going on in, through these transnational organizations as they thought about uh, the presence of minor, Muslim minorities in both Western Europe and um, the United States. So I'm interested in tracing that and teasing that out more. That sounds great. Um, we you. hope you can talk to us more about that when it's done. Well, thank you again, Cambies. Uh, we were talking to Cambies kind of a Siri from Reed College in Oregon about his new book, A History in Islam in America, From the New World to the New World Order. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks so much. So that was my interview with Kambiz Ganabasiri, professor of religion at Reed College, about his new book, A History of Islam in America, From the New World to the New World Order. I highly recommend it for anyone interested in American religious history or Islamic studies. 